by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about how the United States is weaponizing Ukraine against Russia. Also going to be talking about the uh, French elections and going to be having a firsthand account of what life is like under lockdown in Shanghai, China. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by T.J. Coles, a postdoc researcher at Plymouth University in the UK, a regular contributor to Counterpunch, and the author of We'll Tell You What to Think, Wikipedia, Propaganda, and the Making of Liberal Consensus. TJ, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. And TJ, as uh, the war in Ukraine continues to escalate, the United States has been portraying itself uh, as a protector of Ukrainian sovereignty and a defender of the Ukrainian people in what I think is an attempt to sort of mask uh, uh, the real sort of ambitions of uh, the U.S. in that region. And this is particularly relevant uh, given the role of the U.S. in NATO and what I would argue is really instigating the war that's uh, happening right now. But uh, also, it's true that historically, and even in recent years, uh, the United States has made a point to uh, involve itself in Ukraine in such a way um, to basically uh, sort of use it as a part of its plan to attack and contain Russia. And you note this in a recent piece that you wrote uh, for the Gray Zone entitled God's of war, how the U.S. weaponized Ukraine against Russia. And this weaponization seems like it's taken place on a number of levels. And I wanted to start really by uh, talking about um, how the U.S. Uh, uh, trains uh, use Ukrainian military forces, including some of uh, the neo-Nazi elements that um, I think many people have been talking about, although the U.S. mainstream media at this point seems to be uh, sort of glossing over it, whereas I think they reported more honestly some time ago. But I don't want to editorialize uh, too much here, TJ. Uh, help us understand uh, what is the history of uh, this sort of U.S. military training of Ukraine and what is the purpose? Sure. Well, first of all, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia is a war crime. This is a major atrocity. I'm not here to promote the Kremlin's agenda. I think that Russia should withdraw right now. I think also Putin should be facing uh, charges for war crimes. So should Joe Biden. So should Boris Johnson. Uh, all political leaders of states uh, with any power exploit and abuse people. Uh, but like with any crime, which is what this is, uh, the police, for example, they look for motives. That doesn't mean that they justify what's happening, but they try to understand and what you said at the beginning is absolutely correct. There has been a concerted effort uh, for decades, in fact, to turn Ukraine into a, a weapon against Russia. Because Ukraine, uh, and I wrote this years ago in a book called Britain's Secret Wars, Ukraine is a proxy battleground between Russian and U.S. Uh, interests. And it has been since the independence of Ukraine when the Soviet Union collapsed 
so, for example, NATO itself uh, in 1992, I can quote it, they said uh, on their own website, just four months after Ukraine declared independence from the Soviet Union, uh, NATO moved in to create um, what they call strategic partnership, which basically means turning Ukraine into a de facto NATO member. Uh, NATO uh, countries pledge to uh, support each other in the event of a war. Uh, but when you have countries that have nuclear weapons, uh, Russia and the US, uh, if the US intervenes to help uh, Ukraine uh, in the event of Russian aggression, uh, this could escalate into nuclear war. So what the US has done, it's basically weaponized Ukraine, but without the formal commitment to come to Ukraine's aid, which is why today, uh, despite calls for a no-fly zone, the US is not imposing a no-fly zone because it means attacking Russian interests and this could escalate into nuclear war. So that's called having your cake and eating it. The US wants it both ways. They want to turn Ukraine into a weapon against Russia, but they also do not want the formal commitment to have to come to Ukraine's aid against Russia. Uh, and the people that are suffering, of course, uh, are the ordinary Ukrainians. Uh, they're being attacked on both sides. The uh, ethnic Russian Slavic people in Ukraine are being attacked by Ukrainian neo-Nazis, which we can get into. Uh, and now the um, uh, Ukrainians are, are being attacked by Russians. So this is the this is what happens when great powers uh, go to war. It's the ordinary people that suffer. Uh, and NATO's pretty open about their intentions to bring Ukraine into the orbit. The around uh, the same time, so now early to mid 1990s, the Clinton administration then said that. Um, NATO is basically the enforcer of neoliberalism. Uh, Clinton's speeches and various State Department documents that I reference in the article that you mentioned, uh, they explain that um, the economic development in Europe can occur once countries have been stabilized by NATO. So this is like gangster politics, where you join our protectionist racket, in this case NATO, uh, and they can, you know, develop the country economically, which means open it up to U.S. Uh, corporate um, monoliths uh, and open it to foreign direct investment and so on. Uh, and they even explained that, um, to quote them, NATO is not an exercise in diplomacy or deterrence. And this is in the mid-90s under Clinton. Uh, if you look at the propaganda today in the West, it's the exact opposite. It says NATO... Uh, is to deter Russia, uh, when in fact it's basically encircled Russia. So um, uh, then we had um, what's called the um, Partnership for Peace Initiative in the late 90s. Uh, that was anything but peaceful. It meant uh, increased training, uh, U.S. training for uh, Ukraine's armed forces, weapons exports, uh, and... Um, what they call uh, lethal security assistance. Uh, all of this is missing from the Western propaganda. And um, they um, obviously want to focus more on, um, on the political, uh, on the psychology of the political leaders. 
Yeah, and you know, the, the character of NATO that, that you're describing, I think, is important to highlight here. I mean, it's definitely uh, uh, relevant in terms of, of the Russian invasion uh, itself as a big part of it, in terms of concerns around the uh, encirclement of Russia and uh, uh, attempts, what's being read as sort of attempts by the sort of U.S.-NATO uh, uh, alliance, if you will, or axis of using Ukraine sort of a, as a proxy uh, through which to uh, attack Russia, though. So on the one hand, sort of in the West, it's being portrayed as, you know, like a protective force, uh, a defensive force. And uh, although in truth, I mean, it seems to have played out to really just be um, another vector for, you know, U.S. Uh, imperial power in, in a number of ways. And another thing that I was sort of um, interested in, in terms of the military aspect of this, when we talk about um, the training of Ukrainians and and there's this other aspect that you get into in your piece about these uh, Ukrainians that have been trained, you know, taking part in wars that have been led uh, by the U.S. throughout the years. And so it, it seems as though, uh, although, you know, Ukraine is uh, not a NATO member, um, a lot of this effort that we're sort of discussing, TJ, in a number of ways sort of seems uh, designed to uh, draw Ukraine, uh, you know, ever closer to NATO, uh, perhaps, you know, I, I don't know if I want to say like a, almost like a member in any way, but name, but it, it, it just doesn't seem like an act Accident, that we've seen this kind of uh, investment and attention from these U.S. institutions into the Ukraine as it plays uh, a, a part uh, in sort of Washington's uh, broader plans, you know what I mean, in, in the geopolitical sense. Sure. And again, I reiterate what Russia is doing is a war crime. It needs to withdraw. There should be uh, Putin should be on trial for war crimes. So should Joe Biden. So to quote the National Intelligence Annual Threat Assessment, it, that's the U.S. Intelligence Assessment, it recently said Russia is pushing back against Washington. It doesn't say Russia is pushing. It says pushing back. So this means that the U.S. is provoking. Uh, that's arguably a violation of the U.N. Charter, which interferes. It, that's supposed to prohibit the interference in other countries' sovereignty. And it's doing so by um, training and weaponizing Ukraine. So that's grounds for uh, Joe Biden and the Western leaders to stand trial. Uh, and also the response from Russia should have been diplomacy. Uh, using military force as a first resort is also a war crime. Uh, and the turning point for this was uh, 2014 when uh, the U.S. basically engineered a coup uh, in Ukraine to impose a pro-U.S. regime. Uh, and this included uh, working with literal uh, Nazis, which was reported on quite openly at the time in the Washington Post, for example. Uh, today, as this has given very bad publicity to the U.S., the propaganda has changed and they've tried to dilute the the content so they no longer call these uh, far right elements nazis which is what many of them are they call them ultranationalists because that sounds better than nazi uh, but this this began in uh, 2014 and then uh, within the following years you had um, the pentagon's europe command 
uh, with a, a multinational task force that was training the uh, Ukrainian National Guard and the armed forces, which they knew perfectly well had uh, these Nazi elements in them. Uh, and I, as I explain in the piece, this is also using Ukrainians just as pawns, because if you train uh, if you train armed forces for urban combat and guerrilla warfare, that implies that the enemy is going to be drawn in to attacking them in civilian centers. So that's Russia by attacking civilian centers to attack these um, uh, attack the Ukrainian forces. They're indiscriminately attacking civilians. Uh, but the U.S. is encouraging this by um, by training the uh, Ukrainian forces in urban combat. And this has gone on for years. As far as I know, largely, almost completely unreported in Western media. Uh, I found out about it just by looking on U.S. Army website publications. They, they say what they're doing and what their training is. Um, so th this is... Um, in addition to this, there's also covert uh, CIA operations um, that involve uh, training what they call irregular units, which we assume means terrorist units. Uh, again, none of this justifies what Russia is doing in Ukraine. Diplomacy is always the first uh, response uh, uh, that should have been the first response. Uh, invasion, it, it would be a pretty strong burden of proof to say that uh, Russian security had been threatened by Ukraine uh, and justified an invasion. Uh, but also both sides, uh, I mean, we're dealing with countries that have nuclear weapons. So the public in the United States should be pushing their leaders to um, pursue a diplomatic end to this. Uh, there's some uh, there's some protests in Russia where the public are doing the same of their rulers. Uh, the, the U.S. Um, citizens need to be doing the same. There should be um, global mutual interest networks of ordinary Russians and ordinary Americans calling on their leaders to de-escalate and both pursue diplomatic solutions. Yeah, you know, I tend to agree, you know, when you say that, uh, like when we talk about war, you know, it's always sort of uh, the rank and file people uh, who are impacted the most. And what you've hit on here, TJ, I think it is really the crux of this issue in terms of the uh, end game of this war in Ukraine. And that is the threat of uh, a nuclear war. And I feel like this is not something uh, that is really highlighted, uh, at least in the West, in terms of uh, the narrative that we receive uh, over here. Um, and, you know, as we know, you know, the fog of war sort of travels in all directions. But there's a really real danger here that if things continue to escalate, that that it could reach that point. You know, and as such, you know, that diplomacy uh, that you're calling for, uh, I agree, uh, would be the, the best course of action. And uh, I think we see uh, on a number of levels, um, you know, uh, and I don't know. And, and for me, it's like I see, um, you know, we see sort of talks continue between uh, Ukraine and, and Russia and things like that, even amidst uh, all these other uh, military uh, con uh, conflagrations. But it, it seems that we should be really clear about this real threat of a nuclear conflict that would have serious uh, implications for humanity itself. And so as such, I mean, it seems, as you're noting, that really we should be resisting this war drive as much as we can. It would probably mean the end of everything. 
about 10 years ago, climate scientists calculated the effect on the climate of what they call the small regional nuclear nuclear war. Their example was between Pakistan and India, uh, but it might as well be between uh, the US and Russia over Ukraine using uh, what's called uh, tactical more than strategic nuclear weapons. If this if that escalated to what they called a small nuclear war, this would th- that alone would send uh, a dust cloud uh, that would last for a hundred years and block out the sun and cause worldwide famine. Uh, and both sides, the, the Russian elites and the US elites, are just racing towards this scenario just so that they can have control, in this case of Russia's neighbor, uh, and in the US case, uh, the whole world, what they call full-spectrum dominance. Uh, and the fact that people are cheering this on on either side shows how uh, insane normal people can become when they're brainwashed with propaganda. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, as always, TJ, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the elections in France. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation by Emmerich Monville, head of the international sector of the Pole of Communist Renaissance in France and director of the Delgande Marxist Publishing House. Emmerich, thanks so much for joining us. Hello. Thank you. Absolutely. And uh, Emmerich, incumbent French president Emmanuel Macron is set to face off against uh, a far right figure, Marine Le Pen, in uh, the second round of France's presidential elections that are set to happen pretty soon. Now, in the first round, uh, Mr. Macron came out ahead with 27.8 percent of the vote with uh, Le Pen uh, not too far behind at 23.2%. And, you know, uh, to sort of begin, Emmerich, when we look at how Macron has uh, surpassed Le Pen here in this first round, I mean, what do you think it means for France that these are the two forerunners for president? Because, I mean, in the United States, Emmanuel Macron is described as a centrist. But, you know, this is despite, you know, his warnings around, you know, quote unquote, Islamo leftism and things like this. And so, you know, uh, what are the uh, conditions in, in France as we see these two uh, people face off? Oh, um, yes, yeah, you, you, you're right to, to recall that the, the French election uh, had two rounds. Uh, in the, the first round, we have all the candidates. And then the second round, it will be in two weeks. Uh, only the first two uh, meet. 
but uh, there is already a, a strong selection in the first round since uh, only those who have obtained the sponsorship of uh, 500 mayors of France can stand for election. So we can say that we have three blocks in France, uh, and it's, uh, it, we have a confirmation uh, last Sunday, uh, a bourgeois block with Emmanuel Macron, and a strong left-wing opposition led, led by Jean-Luc Mélenchon, as well as a third block of the far right uh, led by Marine Le Pen. And there was a tendency last Sunday to, to abandon the, the smaller candidates to vote for the best placed in each of these blocks. Um, another thing to know is that campaign expenses are, are, are normally reimbursed by the state to, to avoid what we have in the United States. That means the, the race to see who will have the most money, the most private financing. But this is only reimbursed if the candidates uh, exceed 5% of the votes. And this is how, what, what is very important for the, this election and the, for the first round, because we will speak about um, uh, your question, but the second round, but for the fourth round, what is um, uh, major is that the environmentalist candidate, Yannick Jadot, uh, had bet on an ultra-finance campaign and found himself just below the rate of 5%. That means he will have a lot of uh, funds to uh, reimburse, to, to repay. And it is true that he is among the most warlike in the confrontation with Russia nowadays. Is uh, as in Germany, a neoconservative uh, environmentalist, neocon, like Prone to. Um, and that's, for me, that's a big good news of these elections. Um, the bad news is that the best placed candidate uh, on the left was unable to qualify for the second uh, round. And that was a far-right uh, candidate, uh, as you mentioned, which means that we, we find ourselves five years later at exactly the same second round, except that this time it's, uh, it's much, much closer. Macron is credited with only 54% against 46 for Marine Le Pen, while he, ha he has passed uh, the last time five years ago with 66% against uh, 34%. Um, percent. <laughs> And you mentioned uh, Mr. Jean-Luc uh, Mélenchon, who, who came in third in this first round, which, which I thought was interesting because he only just narrowly uh, sort of lost to Le Pen, only by a couple of percentage points, really. And I'm wondering, what do you think sort of that signals for what the feelings are um, amongst the French electorate in terms of this election? And, because it seems that the three major polls in French politics Politics that you mentioned a little earlier seem to basically be represented here, but it, it just seems noteworthy to me that you have these two figures in Le Pen and uh, Mélenchon who are quite different uh, politically be so close in the polls. And so what do you think that sort of signifies? Yes, the, the big uh, difference in, in the meantime from the, from last election, uh, even if we had some signals of the, this situation, then, is that there was the Yellow Vest revolt, the most important revolutionary explosion in France since uh, May 1968. Then the COVID crisis, uh, like everywhere, but perceived in France as very badly managed, like a shortage of masks, uh, removal of beds in the hospitals that continued even in COVID time. And I would also 
also at the, the current international crisis, uh, because the state uh, propaganda in, in France is so anti-Russian that um, it, 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 it can conceal the fact that Macron himself is responsible uh, for, for this crisis. If France with Germany was uh, the, the warrant of the Minsk uh, protocol. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that public opinion in France uh, knows it, but uh, there is a, a, big, a big crisis. But uh, I think there is another block, a fourth block, which is the abstention. But it concerns one Frenchman out of four. It was 22% uh, for, for five years ago, uh, but now it's uh, uh, 20, 25, 26. So M Macron, I think Macron will be elected, but he has uh, already, and we, he will have in the, in the future, a big problem of legitimacy. He, in reality, he's elected only by a third of the voters who represent mostly the wealthy and, the, we must say, the, the retired people. The rest of the population, which suffers from his ultra-neoliberal policies, hates him deeply. Uh, he's, he's called the president of the rich. He's not the president of the French. And uh, in fact, we have a, a real institutional problem because the fifth republic in which we are is, is a presidentialist regime, very different from the American system, for instance, where uh, you have a constant confrontation between the president and the Congress in your country. In France, the, the legislative elections follow the presidential election and the incumbent candidate wins quite all. It's not a parliamentary system where there are always discussions where there should be a balanced policy between these similar blocs. We are in a situation where the bourgeois bloc always wins uh, it, it, because the, the, the two blocs, uh, the two uh, far right and far left cannot uh, unite themselves, of, of course, uh, even if they are inexorably advancing thanks to the crisis. But it's, what is strange is that far right is always a bit um, in advance uh, respecting to, to the left. And it's, it's strange because uh, France has uh, Republican traditions marked by the French Revolution, uh, 1789. And it's, it, it stood up from the rest of Europe at the worst of the, the 30s, for instance, by voting for, for popular France, uh, which means the, the left, why the rest of Europe was sinking into, into fascism. So it's, it's not excluded that, uh, because you asked me about Jean-Luc Mélenchon, it's not excluded that the left, maybe not with uh, this leader, because it will, it will be a bit, a bit older, but uh, it's not excluded that left will pass in five years. But in the meantime, uh, I think that the country will be very, very difficult to, to govern, because uh, there will be many strikes, no, no doubt a, a return of the yellow vest. The, the, the central question in France, I mean, is the, the price of, uh, oil, of oil it's coming up against. It was the trigger of the crisis of the yellow vest, because the, you, you must know that the poor in France live very far from the, the big urban centers, which makes that the, the car, car is a vital problem for them. And we have people who cannot longer go to work because gasoline is too, too expensive. And uh, as you know, the, the price of gasoline is linked to the current crisis in, uh, in Russia. But maybe in, in the States you don't know because you don't have a real uh, problem of oil, of energy. But uh, in Europe, if we are not uh, linked anymore with Russia, it could be very, very dangerous and for the, the whole uh, situation. Yeah, fuel prices have climbed here uh, in the States as well. And uh, Emmerich, you've mentioned the war in Ukraine uh, a few times, and, and I'm wondering how impactful is the uh, war in Ukraine to the French elections, you think? Because it, it seems to have a direct connections to conditions being faced by the French people. 
Yes, I, I must. Uh, you, you must know that the the Russian media in France are banned. You, you cannot have access to them, even the, the Russian media in French, and uh, and even the, the Russian media in uh, in Russian. It's not uh, you can get, you cannot get access to to them from the internet if you are uh, living in uh, in France, and that's why I think that there's a very few people who who know everything because they, they know people who know people and etc uh, etc. Et Maybe a lot of intellectuals understand. But uh, they, they cannot go, get access to, to mainstream uh, media. So it's a, a period of, of disinformation, of uh, war propaganda uh, against, uh, against Russia. And uh, Macron is now the, the president of Europe, of the European Union. So he's leading uh, this, uh, this campaign. And, uh, of course, uh, Marine Le Pen had uh, um, uh, rather, even if she is a far-right uh, leader, that, that's awful, but she, she had um, a, a policy not so marked but so hatred against uh, Russia. But I think Macron will, uh, he will say that Marine Le Pen is the, is far right, is a fascist uh, candidate. And But in the fact, in the, uh, he's responsible for, for the crisis in Ukraine. He's uh, responsible for the nazification of Ukraine, for uh, nazification of a part of the Ukrainian army, because he, he, he was responsible for the, for the protocol of Minsk. He, 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 he met uh, President Zelensky uh, a lot of times. He should have said to him, no war in Donbass, don't bomb your own uh, your, your people, people who speak Russian in Ukraine. Uh, it, it lasted eight years, and Macron didn't say a word. So he will campaign for this second round, saying my um, uh, Marine Le Pen is a fascist, but he's responsible for the nazification of, uh, of the Eastern uh, Europe. <laughs> so, uh, as uh, as leftists, as people of the left, uh, all the, the Marxists in France, uh, we cannot make an anti-fascist front uh, voting for Emmanuel Macron. It's uh, it's uh, it's impossible. So, I think we, we will all abstain ourselves at the, the second round in the in the political election in in France because the, the question of war and peace in Europe is so uh, so important, uh, so so necessary because uh, we must um, uh, we, we must. Speak about the provocations of NATO because NATO should have disappeared since the, the end of the, the USSR, the, the Pact of Varsovie, um, Warsaw, excuse me, Pact of Warsaw. It should have uh, disappeared. And, but on the contrary, it, uh, it has been extended until, until uh, the Baltic states, and then they wanted to, to, to install themselves in Ukraine, which is uh, completely unbearable for, for, for Russia, which is uh, completely uh, like in a, in a circle, like a like like a fortress, and with uh, and President Zelensky wanted to 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 put some nuclear weapons back in the in Ukraine. So it's unbearable. It's, it's an, unacceptable. And uh, but uh, just to to say this, uh, the uh, this truth is is quite impossible now in France and. People, French people, are completely uh, uninformed about these uh, these major. Uh, information. So, so we, we are living in a, in a critical uh, period, and, and, and it's very sad that Macron is uh, elected a uh, second time. But with Marine Le Pen, of course, she has a, a racist program. She is very anti-immigrants. She, 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 she put the blame on all the colored people in, in France. So, of course, it's absolutely unbearable. It's not uh, uh, a solution. And uh, if, if Mélenchon would have been at the second round, it would have been a little hope for change because he wouldn't have been elected. 
but uh, it will be uh, it, it will have been a major sign. But of course, twenty percent of Mélenchon is already something something that goes well for the for the future and for the mobilization of the of the masses of the working people in France. And I'm on on this topic. I think I'm a bit optimistic for the next few years. Yeah, I was, I was hoping you could say more about that about the. Um the prospects for that kind of organizing of mass movements of uh, the poor working and oppressed elements inside France and how this uh, election may affect that? The, the major problem with the Yellow Vest, it, it was that there wasn't a, a real link with the unions and with the working conditions. It was based on uh, on oil, on destitution. But the, the people made some uh, demonstrations on, on Sunday, like in saying they didn't block the, the production of capitalist uh, profits. And so um, it was very difficult to make some strikes. Uh, there were some some attempts at blocking uh, oil refinery, for instance, uh, which means to making a pressure on the on the capitalist uh, system. Uh, and the, the problem with the yellow vest, you you didn't. It was very difficult to 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 say at which party they they belong, which is good. But uh, they they had really uh, problems of um, organizing uh, themselves. And um, of course, Mélenchon was a bit difficult because he's more social democrat than uh, than a real Marxist. Uh, so he has his, its uh, limits uh, himself. But uh, the situation is so so heavy. The, the the living conditions are becoming so so difficult in France. And France has a lot of uh, has a revolutionary tradition that is very strong. So um, I think it will. Uh, uh, Macron knows already that it won't be. Uh, it won't absolutely not be easy for for him for the five next um, years. Yeah, and I'm also wondering, even if uh, Mr. Macron is re-elected, which appears uh, likely the case, um, it still seems as though Marine Le Pen uh, has a real surge of support here. Do you think this could mean a kind of reinvigorating of the far right in France, or, or what do you think it means for that reactionary element? Uh, Marie Le Pen is the daughter of a uh, father who founded uh, the party, and uh, you must know that he founded this party with uh, the, the ex-fascist of the uh, fascist regime in France during the Nazi occupation. Uh, he founded this party with the ex-SS, uh, former uh, SS people of the, the, the Nazi army. Uh, of course, they were not all like that, but there, there were some people like that. She, uh, her party came really from the from the far right. But of course, she she managed to 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 put an image of her. Uh, she's uh, she's always speaking. Uh, she was always speaking with cats uh, around her in order to to say I'm very mild, I'm soft, uh, etc. But the core of uh, her program is always directed at. Um, uh, scapegoats, uh, ma- making scapegoats of the of the uh, of the migrants in uh, in France, and uh, I, I think f- for this side, uh, you won't, you will never, you will never have a majority of the uh, French with, that will vote for her. It's the the ideal uh, candidate for Macron for the bourgeois bloc, because he, he knows that even uh, against a horse, he, he, <laughs> even a horse against Marine Le Pen would have been elected. You 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 can pr- present uh, every candidate you want; he will always be elected. You know that uh, normally in France you have a. Uh, 
50% of the left and 50% of the right. All the, the presidential election w was very, it was always very short. There was, a, uh, there was a suspense. But even in this tragic situation, you have 54 and uh, 46%. So it's quite, uh, it's quite sure that Macron will be, will be elected. But it's true that uh, since, uh, for 20, 20 years, we have been this, uh, uh, the far right is always uh, gaining uh, momentum. It's always growing. And you don't know where it can uh, end. Of course, uh, I think in the five, uh, five next years, maybe we'll talk a bit later. You will uh, invite my, <laughs> me in, uh, to, to comment it. But uh, I think we, uh, what is more, and Marine Le Pen and, and a party, uh, I'm not sure that it represents a future because it's a, it's a deadlock for 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 because there's no no solution, no economical solution, no economical change, only making scapegoats. And uh, I think the people in France will uh, will understand, will realize what uh, what what it does mean. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Emmerich, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're going to hear a first-hand account of what life is like under lockdown in Shanghai, China. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Tings Chok, researcher and coordinator of the Art Department of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research and a founding member of Dong Sheng News. Tings, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me again, Sean. Jack, it's always a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. And Tings, uh, you're there in uh, Shanghai, China, a city of over 25 million people that right now is facing one of the worst outbreaks of coronavirus since the onset of the pandemic. Uh, in late March, uh, Ma Chun-Lei, who's the secretary general of Shanghai's government, admitted that the city at that point wasn't really prepared to deal with the surge. And in the time since, Shanghai has embarked on a very ambitious project to contain the spread of the virus while also keeping the economy intact. And here in the United States, and I think in the West broadly, we're told a lot about what's happening in Shanghai and in China more generally as it concerns the coronavirus pandemic. But we never really hear from someone who's actually experiencing it. And so I'm curious from your perspective, Tings, I mean, uh, uh, how is a lockdown in Shanghai unfolding up until this point? I mean, how does testing work? Uh, you know, how are people getting some of their basic necessities? How are some of these fundamental things uh, sort of operating uh, from your vantage point at this moment? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, you, you started with saying it's a really a city the size of a country, right? You know, 25 million people, 
25 million stories. So I won't say that what I'm seeing and what I'm kind of researching and keeping an eye on is a, a comprehensive view, but definitely something I'm clued into. So I would say there's a couple of aspects that I think important to note that there's a huge amount of sort of infrastructure that's being built up to help um, control the pandemic. Uh, and then there are also a massive amounts of human mobilization that's happening on various fronts. So you asked about testing, and I think that that is uh, central because, you know, China has had a few outbreaks since, you know, Wuhan came out two, uh, two and a half years ago. Um, but this has been by far the largest mass testing experience of China and probably ever in history. So just last week, um, the city decided to t mass test the entire city in a day. 25 million people. And so you just have to imagine the scale of mobilizing that takes place. And in fact, they brought in uh, 38,000 medical professionals that, you know, from 15 different provinces and regions to help in that effort. Um, in addition to testing a variety of, of, of tasks like delivering food and goods. And, and I can talk a bit more about how that's working afterwards. And so, uh, uh, that mass testing happens and I can share with you a little bit because I just went this morning at eight in the morning and the last week I've done actually four tests, uh, PCR tests. And usually what happens is someone in my building, a volunteer, uh, who's this lovely elderly woman, uh, knocks on the door to, and lets everyone know, oh, we're, we're going testing now. And usually it's separated community by community to ensure that there's no cross-contamination. And then ours is in a schoolyard nearby. And there's about 20,000 testing sites set up across the country of this kind. And usually takes about five, 10 minutes, you know, you socially distance, line up in a, you know, community yard. And then, of course, the testing is free. And then results come the next day and, and it's logged into a, a national system uh, that kind of, uh, you know, keeps tabs of all the tests. And, and of that, like I mentioned, the volunteers, but, you know, there are... Um, hundreds of thousands of people would say mobilized that's a mixture of party members um lots of volunteers um but also you know the tens of thousands of delivery workers and healthcare workers to kind of keep the city going while it's still in lockdown um and the the numbers are high i mean uh as of you know, since March 1st the last i checked it was up to a quarter million cases but i but the cases are bad, but the, the vaccination rates are quite high, right? In China, it's about 87%. Um, so we're not seeing this um, equating with, you know, rise in death tolls. In, in fact, that's quite a, just very few cases um, and often linked to people who are actually having difficulties accessing um, health, like hospitals, because of other um, health issues. And that, that's a real problem that the government's trying to address right now. Yeah. And, you know, I've also been seeing some some images and videos of uh, people in line to get tested wearing uh, costumes and, and things like that. So I thought that was fun. And, and yeah, I was hoping you could say more about um, the food delivery aspect of things and how that works out as well. Um, yeah, this is the kind of key thing. It takes up a, quite a bit of our time every day. <laughs> um, food, I think, is organized and, and medical supplies are organized uh, I think there's two ways. One is through the party mobilization in the grassroots areas. So the key kind of most grassroots level is called the Zhuihui, which is a residential community um, committee. There's about 6,000 in Shanghai. Um, and they're 
responsible um, for the daily life of communities. So in this moment, they're the ones that really mobilize to make sure that information is getting um, uh, to everyone in the communities, um, doing testing, uh, or at least advising us of when the testing is doing. They're not actually doing the testing themselves or delivering uh, government uh, food packages. And for us, uh, in my apartment, we got two deliveries last week. Um, one was uh, a pretty big bag of veggies, mostly vegetables and that kind of thing, and some, um, you know, big bag of rice and noodles because, you know, we can't live without noodles. And actually some um, traditional Chinese medicine as well, um, which have been proven to, to be effective with um, mild symptoms. Uh, as well as kind of masks and uh, home antigen t test kits, because um, what Shanghai has been doing is, in addition to the mass and uh, PCR testing, they've also been doing um, uh, home testing. So I've been doing that every day. Um, but I have to say that the food uh, that the government delivers is not—it's um, largely not enough, and it's or it's inconsistent, or not—they're not able to deliver it, so it keeps fresh to everyone uh, all the time. So where it comes in is really the massive self-organization that's been happening, or what we call Tuan Go. It's like collective buy groups, buying groups, uh, where um, communities have just come together to um, to to make bulk purchases of pretty much anything, and and that's been the lifeline of for most people. Um, and in fact, I think it's kind of nice to share is that a lot of these you know sort of self-elected leaders of these. Uh, usually online groups and, and delivery workers have really become, you know, heroes, the everyday heroes, because they're ensuring that the supplies um, are getting to people. Just the other day, I had a chance to talk with one of the delivery workers, you know, socially distanced. And he, to in order to kind of avoid getting stuck in his community that he lives in because, you know, he, he's delivering food. And if someone like a neighbor got a case and his community gets shut down, he can't deliver food. So he's been actually living in his van, working, you know, 15 hours a week. I've added him now on my WeChat. He's like a friend now on WeChat is like the social media messaging platform. And it was I mean, amazing. Like he's been working 15 hour days and he was even arguing with his boss when there was a problem with the app of like what we ordered and what was delivered. And he was just like defending us and making sure that we were getting the food. And, and so it's been really impressive to see the kind of informal self-organization, but also at the level of, you know, the party um, organization in the communities. Yeah. And see, this is really what I wanted to sort of hone in on uh, uh, things and what I'm, I'm most interested in really in terms of life under lockdown in Shanghai is this kind of collective grassroots effort that seems to be mobilizing the communities on a number of uh, levels to really help, you know, support each other through this period. I mean, you mentioned um, this concept of uh, a Tuan Go and, and things like this. And, and that just really seems like a, an important aspect of, uh, you know, keeping people afloat and making sure that folks have the things that they need under uh, what can be, I'm sure, difficult conditions of a lockdown. So just from what you've seen, how important is that kind of, you know, culture of, you know, uh, uh, being a good neighbor and cooperation and this sort of grassroots uh, mobilization? How important is all of that to, you know, frankly, supporting people during this lockdown period? I mean, it's been essential. And I, I would say um, 
that a lot of the communities, including my own, you know, our neighbors didn't know each other previously. Um, but I think it also because I had moved here just a few months ago and it's still relatively new, but, you know, I'll give an example of how, how our, um, community started um, doing these group purchases is um, like on a sunny day, I saw my neighbor on the third floor with her the kid um, kind of, you know, taking him some vitamin D. And I just kind of yelled down to her, hey, can we exchange numbers? And from there on, we started adding, you know, I know that one person or do you know someone from fourth floor? And now we have a group going. And actually just yesterday, we our first order came in. And I'm happy to report that there's essential goods. And then also we got some beer delivered as well. So I'm pretty happy about that. <laughs> so we were able to access all kinds of things. I mean, lockdown is boring. It's not a, a fun time. But I have to say that's also, you know, there's also people who kind of fall through their cracks in the sense of like, these are really relying on people who, you know, have cell phones. Most of people obviously have cell phones, but so there's a bit of checking in to make sure, oh, is that like elderly woman who's on the second floor who might not be in the WeChat groups and everything? Does she have food as well? You know, has anyone checked in on her? And I think that kind of stuff is really important because Shanghai is a relatively older city. And that's also one of the reasons why, you know, it, this has been a scary moment because a lot of the elders haven't yet been fully vaccinated or haven't gotten their um, uh, booster shots yet. Um, about a quarter uh, of the population are above 60. And so, you know, uh, that whole support has been essential to making sure, you know, that those elders that aren't connected in the neighborhood or maybe aren't living with kids or living alone are, are getting food as well. And, and for us, it's been really essential because sometimes if your orders, you know, we're pretty spoiled in Shanghai because there's a whole kind of you know, delivery services, people are used to like in 30 minutes, you get an order after you order it on your phone. So sometimes it might take days to get your orders or maybe orders get canceled. But a lot of times, you know, you just, you know, what I do is write in the group and say, hey, um, uh, we're you know, running out of, you know, veggies. Does anyone have any? And, you know, someone might leave it by your door or, you know, I don't drink milk and have extra milk. And my you know neighbor has some kids and I left a box of milk for her. You know, that kind of stuff is happening. And it's really essential. Um, and it's a lifeline, I think, of, of this lockdown moment. Yeah, I mean, definitely that 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 uh, social solidarity just seems so important. And on on another aspect of things, uh, things uh, you all reported in, in Dongsheng News that um, Shanghai's municipal government has offered twenty two billion dollars in in tax incentives to uh, local businesses. Why do you think this aspect of things is uh, important while folks are on lockdown and can't you know patronize a lot of these places as they maybe normally would? Yeah, I mean, that's an essential part because there's already been some experiences of lockdowns, obviously. So these financial packages were already um, um, earmarked when the lockdown was announced. Um, um, so that includes a series of tax cuts or, you know, rent exemptions or, you know, uh, ensuring that banks are offering low interest loans for businesses. And because there are practices that have been applied also in other cities that have been hit hard or um, other kinds of incentive measures like consumption vouchers um, uh, so that, you know, um, businesses are getting that local um, um, kind of cash circulation. Or in some cases, you know, in Shanghai, they've been a series of you know, green passes as like uh, they're like designated businesses that can can supply food during the uh, pandemic. But I mean, I think it's part of a whole larger series of, of um, financial incentives since the pandemic started two years ago of how to 
um, inject money because to keep COVID at bay and to keep, you know, COVID zero or zero COVID policy and, and protect lives, it costs a lot, you know? And so we've seen a huge amount of stuff to supporting small, medium businesses, um, and, or stimulating the economy, um, through construction projects. I mean, just this year alone, um, $2.3 trillion has been planned for construction projects. Of course, that being a major um, uh, stimulus uh, in this period of recovering from the pandemic. Yeah, and you know, this brings me to a, a broader question about how the lockdown in Shanghai is connected to China's broader zero COVID policy, which I think has proven itself, frankly, to be uh, really quite efficient and effective at containing the virus. And here in the United States, we continue to be told that um, China's lockdown measures are draconian and repressive. Um, I was looking at a recent piece on CNN that, um, you know, described the lockdowns as, quote, chaotic and uncompromising. Now, all of this, this is coming from the U.S., where we're on the precipice of one million COVID deaths. Meanwhile, in China, a country with a far, far larger population, we've seen far, far fewer deaths. And so there's a sustained effort um, in the U.S. and I would say also in the West in general to cast doubt or to uh, uh, stigmatize China's zero COVID policy. And so how do you see the uh, Shanghai lockdown and how it's been operating up until this point sort of connected to the zero COVID policy and, and the reality of how that policy has really impacted um, the pandemic inside China? I mean, I think one of the first things I would say to that is uh, that um, we can't confuse the problems that Shanghai is facing and and they're real problems, you know, Um, like you had mentioned in the beginning of the show that um, Shanghai underestimated in some ways the spread of especially of this Omicron BA2 variant which is way quicker way faster than any of the variants before and 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 didn't act quickly enough in, in fact you know the government uh, you know made its own criticisms and you know some officials have also been dismissed for this inadequate handling etc but what's happening in Shanghai shouldn't be confused with the whole of zero COVID policy. I mean, zero COVID policy is a national policy, but the implementation has been decentralized into the cities. Mm. Um, And I'll I'll give an example, you know, Shenzhen, uh, which is another mega city in the South, in my home province, um, has had a very different experience. Um, About a month ago, they, they, right after initial cases were found, they just went and did a one week lockdown of the city. And essentially the city has returned back to normal. They acted pretty swiftly. Um, And these are both according to the zero COVID policy, but in some ways there were some um, mistakes even the government here has admitted to to making and not acting quick enough. But I think on this larger question of what is draconian, what is repressive, I I mean, we have to remember why why zero COVID in the first place? Like what motivates a policy like that? You can say it's extreme or something, but is it the market, you know? Clearly, no capitalist country or in the West would shut down a financial capital like Shanghai for two weeks because it's profitable. You know, it's and it's I don't know. I wouldn't believe in the idea that like maybe like the you know government here is just evil and it's just doing it for the sake of being repressive. No, I mean, it, it's to save lives. You know, it's to save lives. Um, and I, I went to do a little looking right before a show is that, you know, while 
the media has been, you know, Western mainstream media has been really running to condemn China's repressive measures. Um, I found out that in a week, 3,500 people had died in the U.S. alone. These are recorded deaths. 3,500 people are still dying a week in the U.S. And this is also in other major Western countries, like in Germany, it's almost 2,000 in the last week. I mean, I think in the capitalist world, death is just so normalized that the idea of protecting lives at these, you know, you know, taking huge measures to do so is seen as excessive or brutal or like a denial of human rights. I mean, to me, it's, there's been 6 million deaths recorded in, in the world. Uh, I, I mean, I can't think of a larger crime against human rights than something like that, you know? So anyways, if, if China didn't adopt a zero COVID policy, we'd be seeing millions more deaths. I mean, I don't even want to imagine if it took a policy like the U.S., um, that apparently isn't draconian, um, what that would look like for the world. And and this policy, of course, I mean, it's not going to be for forever. I mean, none of none of us hope for that. But it's a process of, you know, China buying its time, even at huge economic costs like we talked about, so that, you know, vaccines can continue to improve. You know, China is now, you know, testing mRNA vaccines, um, you know, making sure all the elders and those at risk um, are fully vaccinated and more and, and a variety of things to make sure it's not a forever policy. But at this moment, it's still considered, and I support it, to to to, to avoid those deaths, you know, um, 3,500 deaths a week in the U.S. is way too many. It's definitely way too many. And I mean, I can't help but think about the one so-called lockdown that we had here in the U.S., which wasn't even really a lockdown. And we certainly didn't receive uh, any of the kind of support that we, you know, see uh, in China. And also that that culture of collectivity that we're talking about, that sort of level of social solidarity. Um, we saw it in some ways with like mutual aid groups. But, you know, in terms of the overall, it just wasn't really present, which I think, uh, you know, probably contributes some to, to the overall picture. But we thank you so much Tings for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Wednesday, April 13th, 2022. And in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. You can also listen to the show on Sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. Streaming live here on rumble.com slash C as in cat slash B A M necessary. And you can download our shows at sputnik.mave.digital. That's sputnik.mave.digital. 
digital, but wherever you are in this world and however you connect with us, we most certainly want to hear from you. Uh, at the top of the hour, a suspect has been arrested in uh, the uh, Brooklyn, New York train shooting that happened recently uh, there. Uh, it was 62-year-old Frank James who has been arrested in connection to this uh, where 10 people were shot and wounded uh, with a dozen uh, other people uh, suffering injuries. And last I saw, there were also a few folks that were in a critical condition. And so we'll continue to keep you up to date on that as it unfolds. But be that as it may, we're happy to be joined for the hour today by Gloria Lariva, coordinator of the Cuba and Venezuela Solidarity Committee. Gloria, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you, Gloria. And I wanted to begin today pointing out how as the war in Ukraine continues to escalate, so too does the rhetoric that we're seeing coming from the United States and the West. U.S. President Joe Biden has now described the war in Ukraine as a genocide. Uh, giving some comments recently, Biden said, quote, your family budget, your ability to fill your tank, none of it should hinge on whether a dictator declares war and commits genocide a half a world away. He goes on to say, it's become clear and clear that Putin is just trying to wipe out the ideas of being Ukrainian. The evidence is mounting. It looks different than last week. More evidence is coming out, literally, of the horrible things that Russians have done in Ukraine. And we're going to only learn more and more about the devastation and we'll let the lawyers decide internationally whether or not it qualifies. But it sure seems that way to me. Uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky took to Twitter to praise Biden's for his comments, saying, quote, we are grateful for U.S. assistance provided so far and we urgently need more heavy weapons to prevent further Russian atrocities. Now, of course, Gloria, it, it goes without saying, really, that violence is a defining characteristic of war. Death is a defining characteristic of war. And indeed, uh, when you have different parties that are involved in a war, none of them leave the conflict uh, without blood on their hands. But when we talk about this accusation of genocide, that's very, very serious, right? Because we're talking about an actual crime against humanity. And it's not really something that should be uh, bandied about or, or, or taken loosely. I mean, you know, we wouldn't walk up to a random person on the street and just accuse them of murder. That's a very serious thing to accuse someone of. Uh, just sort of off the cuff. And uh, the United States and even Joe Biden specifically to accuse another country uh, of genocide, I think is more than a bit hypocritical. I mean, given even just the uh, different wars and conflicts that Biden himself has had a hand in, whether we're talking about Iraq or uh, uh, the whole issue of Libya when he was a vice president under Barack Obama. But this, this, this weaponization of the accusation of genocide is a very familiar and well-worn tactic that's used by the U.S. government to demonize other countries and other governments that they deem to be enemies 
to justify whatever the U.S. wants to do to attack that country. Uh, a little while ago, Glory, we had you on the show to, uh, to talk about the, the NATO war on Yugoslavia. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that uh, uh, the then leader Slobodan Milosevic was uh, also accused of genocide and things like that. I mean, and even here recently, we've seen with China being accused of uh, genocide against the Uyghur population, despite there really not being any evidence to support that. And of course, we see not only the U.S. government, but the U.S media really uh, uh, propagating this uh, uh, bellicose warlike uh, uh, rhetoric and more than happy to sort of, you know, give a platform to the U.S. government now, of course, under the leadership of Joe Biden to to make these kinds of accusations. And I maintain that, you know, the the U.S. media has been particularly bellicose on um, this war in Ukraine. But, you know, as someone who has sort of seen uh, time and again how the U.S. deploys these kinds of accusations to uh, kind of obscure the real um, intentions of imperialism, I mean, it's just uh, something, to say the least, is not new. You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. Thank you for setting up the whole background to this, because, Sean, the issue right now is that the, the American public and certainly people in the Western countries of Europe and elsewhere, what we see in the United States is a complete monolithic wall of media coverage that presents an extremely one-sided and a story, a narrative. And it's impossible for people to know what is really going on. Now, certainly it's a war. There's chaos, there's the firing from both sides and so on. So it's not always able to tell exactly what's happening, but the U.S. has already condemned Russia. As soon as Zelensky or other officials in Ukraine charge uh, that Russia was guilty of something, the U.S. immediately, as well as the European Union and NATO powers say, well, Russia is guilty and as you said, the escalation came now with Biden saying that Russia is guilty of genocide. And this is all intended to prepare the U.S. public for increased escalation, major escalation, including the very real possibility of the NATO forces, especially United States, weighing in in this war. And as a matter of fact, if you read independent sources or sources from those who are actually on the ground reporting, those that have been censored from Main Street media but can be accessed through tele Telegram or other sources, um, U.S. commanders are reportedly there and already, of course, involved in training in the last two years, openly training Ukrainian forces in U.S. tactics. And it's a... Uh, it's very, very hard for people to know. So, you know, myself and many others, activists in our organization, in the ANSA coalition and so on, when we go out to talk to people and say, first of all, a few weeks ago, we don't want to know fly zone. It's a very deadly, deadly escalation. It could lead to third world war, nuclear war. People don't understand. They think that you're for, you know, killing people, killing civilians. And so it's a very hard thing to walk through, but certainly this media war is very intense. Uh, one example was the Kramatorsk uh, train station, uh, 
in which last week uh, the Ukrainian government and the U.S. said that Russia killed dozens of civilians. Well, first of all, it's in the area of the Donbass, which has been under attack for more than eight years by the Ukrainian government. And yet later, a few days later, it turned out photographs showing that pieces of the missile that hit the train station, which was very devastating, killed dozens of people, injured dozens. I'm sorry, that late, a few days later, after this hysterical charge that Russia had killed the people in the train station with its missile, that it was in fact a Tochka U missile that is employed as crane. But of course, first comes the charge, the charge of guilty, and then later corrections are made, but then people don't pay attention to that. And yet one more crime is added to the list against Russia. And I want to give an example, if I may, a historical example of how the media is playing this major role of creating hysteria and then later says, oh, I guess it wasn't true. May I do that? Absolutely. Well, this is in the case of Romania. And 1989 was 33 years ago. I mean, a long time ago. A long time ago. And many, many young activists weren't even born then. But 89 was a time when the U.S. really thought with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the coming disintegration of the Soviet Union, that the Eastern European socialist countries from Poland to Romania to Bulgaria and all the others were being overthrown and capitalism being restored. But at the same time, on the other side of the world was a U.S. offensive that wasn't so clear to people um, against China. And the U.S. was using massive communications, trying to break into the military's communications, trying to get people, trying to entice Chinese soldiers to defect, uh, trying to see if they could find fissures in the military. At the same time, that quite a number of youth were protesting in Tiananmen, which was at the first, you know, concerns, charges of corruption, uh, unhappiness by students, you know, many who had traveled, who had studied abroad in the United States and elsewhere in the developed countries and came back with a sense of dissatisfaction. But the U.S. took advantage with a counter-revolutionary leadership, and it ended up in early June with what has been portrayed here as a Tiananmen massacre, which in fact did not occur. It was a an armed struggle that began with certain elements of what we would call today color revolution, which was repressed by the government. But what the U.S. didn't mention was that hundreds of soldiers and others defending the government were killed. It was an attempt to overthrow the Chinese government. We can imagine what would have happened in all these years if that had succeeded. But in Romania, and also there was a Panamanian war, the U.S. was building up this. Um, hostility and aggression against Panama when they finally invaded Panama, killed some 3,000 people, overthrew the government, and saw their own puppet. And all of this in 1989, with the hysteria that accompanied it. The news against Panama was that Noriega, who was the head of the government, was a drug dealer, a drug trafficker. And that was enough to get people to say, well, whatever the U.S. does in Panama is fine. But another incident was that in Romania. Romania 
was the last country overthrown in 1989 on Christmas Day. And in the days and weeks before was the Radio Free Europe, all the U.S. propaganda, and the financing of fascist elements inside Romania intended to overthrow the government. And I remember those days in late, late December, the day before, the two days before um, Ceausescu and his wife were actually brought before the television studio, right on TV. They were put on trial for like two minutes, told you're guilty, and they were executed right on television. The people who killed them were not on the TV screen. It was just your face to see these two, the leader and his wife, murdered. But right before that, to soften up the public of the United States and Romania, the media from the, U, the New York Times to all the Western media was declaring that Ceausescu's forces had killed at least 10,000 people, gunned 10,000 protesters in the town of Timisoara, T-I-M-I-S-O-A-R-A. And that was the height of this hysteria in the United States. Nobody could argue that it was false. Nobody could, because that was the line. And yet, after they were overthrown, the government was overthrown, some form of capitalism was restored, and great repression, great, great repression. And on February 9th, maybe a month and a half later, the New York Times reports in a one-inch deep article, exactly one inch, says, well, it turns out that it wasn't thousands who were killed. It seems that maybe 71 people were killed. And even that number, which side? Who was killed? Because certainly soldiers defending the government were killed and people supporting the government were killed. But to go from 10,000 to 71 a month and a half later, and nobody paid attention to that because it was a one-inch article. And by that time, the damage was done. I believe that's what's happening right now in Ukraine, that the American people are being prepared for a deeper intervention by the U.S. and NATO. But in the meantime, they're pouring weapons, heavy weapons of all kinds, into Ukraine to prolong a devastating war. Yeah, I definitely agree that the U.S. seeks to uh, prolong the war in Ukraine. I mean, I feel like uh, Joe Biden, you know, said as much uh, a couple of uh, weeks ago. And, you know, there have been several different people on the show who have said that, you know, the U.S. is more than willing to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian. And I think, unfortunately, that's true. That paints a very dark picture for the people of Ukraine who are already suffering under this. But then to have this uh, country that's presenting itself as your protector and defender being, you know, the main one that, uh, you know, is, is exacerbating uh, that suffering, you know what I mean? And so even connecting what you've just described in Romania, Gloria, which 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 is incredible, really. I mean, with people getting assassinated on television, I mean, it's hard to you know even imagine something like that now, even though it wasn't that long ago. Um, and even like with the issue with the no fly zone that, that you were speaking to and, and how some people were reacting to it. I think it goes to show just how deeply propagandized the people of the United States are. And the people of the U.S. don't think that they're being propagandized to. They think that they're well-informed because most people um, imbibe a steady diet of corporate-owned media 
that is, you know, operated by the ruling class, by this class of people um, who hoard the wealth of this country and therefore uh, basically stand as ideological platforms for uh, their class, if you will. And I really think we should start to look at it in that way and, you know, let the U.S. tell it, you know, only the bad guys have propaganda. So, you know, CNN, MSNBC, the New York Times, the Washington Post, Politico, The Hill, this, you know, that's not propaganda. That's that's just news. You know what I mean? But the truth is, when you see how the coverage and analysis of things dovetails with the interest of U.S. imperialism, then it's plain to see that it's just a bullhorn for uh, uh, those interests. And many people who consider themselves journalists are really just stenographers for that ruling class. You know what I mean? And so this uh, kind of propagandization is always necessary. And what it really is to me, I would call it information warfare. I mean, it it contributes to this uh, whole fog of war reality that we're living in right now. And the thing about the fog of war is that it tends to uh, spread rather rapidly and in all directions. And as you say, Glory, it can be difficult to know all of what happened in uh, different situations. Now, personally, like if we look at um, like the killings in Bucha or um, the attacks in Mariupol, it seems to me that independent investigations are really uh, what's needed to to determine what happened and what didn't happen and who's responsible for a lot of these things. But we don't see any we don't see calls for that in the U.S. and the West because they're only interested in just pushing this narrative that um, Russia is responsible for these crimes. You know what I mean? And so this, I think, is the real value in, in demonizing countries, demonizing governments and demonizing leaders, which I mean, we see constantly so much of what we see about the war in Ukraine is focused on Vladimir Putin as an individual. You noted uh, all the violence in um, the Donbass over the last eight years, 14,000 people dead because of that. But we didn't hear this hue and cry about human rights from the United States in all that time. And even now, I think, excuse me, that context has been glossed over because what's presented to us is this very uncomplicated binary narrative of Russia bad, Ukraine good. And to say this is not to uh, support the invasion, but it is to say that it is far more complicated than just that. You know what I mean? And so I feel like. The, the U.S. corporate media propaganda that we see, Jackie, and the kind of information warfare that it's part and parcel of, I think very purposefully serves a thought killing purpose because I think the U.S. government understands and these platforms understands that if they were to just be honest about the fact that what they really want is to encircle and confront Russia so that they can maintain control and, and, and get to this full spectrum dominance. Well, then they know that that probably won't go over too well and people of the United States would be more inclined to resist. And so it seems that the real goal of this propaganda is to ensure that there's a population that is willing to go along and support what U.S. imperialism is doing and to make them feel as if they have some stake in supporting it as well. There, there. The the term that you used of the truth killing process is so true. 
because now everyone's supposed to think that there was no history of NATO before this and that NATO is the savior and the defender of Ukrainian democracy and so on. But it's not only that NATO was an alliance directed, I mean, it was, a, it was an alliance directed against the Soviet Union and the socialist camp, but it was always one of aggression. In fact, the counterpart of the Soviet Union and the socialist countries of Eastern Europe did not develop until 1955, uh, six years after NATO was formed. Now, why was that? Because in 1949, when NATO was formed, you know, four years after the end of World War II, certain Western powers, the U.S., Canada, Portugal, France, Italy, Ireland, Northern Ireland and Great Britain, Norway, Iceland, a little Luxembourg and other countries like that, and, and Denmark. They were the founding nations. But, and the next two, it's very strategic what the U.S. was doing. Because when we talk about NATO, we need to talk about the United States as the founder, as the head of the imperialist powers. And the next two countries that were added were very strategically aimed against the Soviet Union. And that was Turkey and Greece. Why Turkey? Because Turkey manages, controls the two exits, the two straits out of the Black Sea. And of course, the Black Sea is strategic, first for the Soviet Union, now for Russia, because of the Black Sea fleet. It's only warm water uh, naval port. Uh, very important for Russia today. But Turkey controls the Bosporus Straits and the Dardanelles Straits. So by joining NATO, it could, it could cut off access to that. Uh, it's the only access out of the Black Sea. And then, the and of course, Greece. The next country that, that uh, joined NATO was another threat to the Soviet Union, and that was West Germany. Imagine, 10 years after the end of World War II, when the Soviets suffered 27 million people who died by Germany's invasion and devastating genocidal war, that now it becomes an ally of the United States and NATO by joining NATO. And that was the that that triggered the formation of the Soviet Union's Warsaw Pact. That is a military alliance in defense against NATO. And that was Soviet Union's concern. And then, of course, in 1982 came Spain. In 1990 was the change with the fall of some of the socialist countries in Eastern Europe, Poland. Uh, no, excuse me. Uh, in 1990, East Germany became part of a unified Germany and it joined NATO. And then after the fall of the, of the Soviet Union, and Eastern Europe, then those countries lined up and became part of NATO, really as staging grounds directed against Russia. And of course, the big, big, big threat to Russia is the issue of Ukraine, which most of us are familiar with. But we have to understand that NATO was not a defensive alliance. And it is now using the, the war in Ukraine to justify what it was already preparing in Ukraine. And this history is being wiped out by the media that a naval base that was uh, appropriate for be 
quickly converting to a NATO base with all the requirements of such a structure was being built um, along the coast of the Black Sea in Ukraine by the British. And of course, we know that the Washington Post revealed that hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars of weapons was being poured into Ukraine in December before the February invasion by Russia. So I think it's important for people to know that the Russian government, that you paint, you, Putin has said recently that because of everything that was being built in Ukraine uh, before February 24th and because of the increased integration of the Nazi battalion, the Azov battalion, and many other of these fascist organizations, which are quite, they have quite an influence in Ukraine, that Putin said recently, we could not wait any longer. It would have been too late for our proper defense. And I think people need to know at least that side of the story because we hear enough of the U.S. side. And that's not to ratify any kind of statement, but people should know it's important to try to find alternate news as your program is. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Gloria Lariva. And Gloria, we've been talking about how um, the U.S. is escalating its its rhetoric against Russia within the context of this war in Ukraine. And there's another aspect of this that I actually want to connect to a whole other issue because President Joe Biden is also authorizing the transfer of $750 million more dollars in additional weapons to Ukraine. And if I'm understanding the reporting correctly, this looks to be a part of the $14 billion Ukraine aid package that was negotiated by uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer last month. Now, on the flip side of that, you know, elsewhere in the world, in a different part of the world with a very different system, uh, in Venezuela, the Venezuela's great housing mission has achieved its milestone of delivering 4 million homes to its people. And uh, not long ago, uh, Nicolas Maduro, the president, commented on this, uh, talking about, you know, how this was uh, a, a real achievement for the people of Venezuela and saying, quote, nothing and no one is going to stop us calling it historic and a world record. And the four millionth house uh, that was delivered is located in the Satillo municipality in Anzoa Tiguay, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, state, uh, which is overseen by uh, Governor Luis Marsano. 
And uh, he said, quote, those who today inhabit these 200 homes were working on its construction. So he's talking about the direct involvement of the Venezuelan people in this uh, uh, housing mission. And uh, President Maduro promised uh, uh, 5 million homes by the year 2024. And the reason I raised this, Gloria, is that we continue to see the United States government pour all of this money into the Ukraine war, which, as we noted earlier, will only continue to exacerbate the suffering of the Ukrainian people already living in a war reality, right? Meanwhile, in Venezuela, a government that we're told is overrun by this uh, dictatorship, this despotic, socialist, authoritarian, and everything else bad uh, uh, government in Venezuela uh, has accomplished its goal of delivering 4 million homes to its people. And it seems to me that the, uh, the priorities there just could not be more different. And that's because Venezuela operates on a very different system and in a very different culture than the United States. We have a socialist Venezuela, which, by the way, was also able to achieve this while under sanctions by the United States and also with dealing with the difficulties of the coronavirus pandemic that the rest of the world is. And meanwhile, the richest nation in the history of nations only sees fit to give ample financial support and other kinds of support to death, destruction, and bloodshed. And so, you know, we're told that, you know, countries and governments like Venezuela, like Cuba, like Nicaragua, like Bolivia, and so many others that we could name, you know, we're told that they're like these hellish, uh, you know, realities, nightmarish sort of uh, things that uh, the people of those countries are going through on a daily basis. Meanwhile, 140 million people in the United States uh, are living at or near the poverty line. And, you know, the funny thing about the U.S. when you talk about housing, I don't know that we actually sort of need a housing program. I think we actually have enough housing. It's just that because housing is put to the interest of capital, it's the reason why there's actually more housing than there are homeless people in the United States. But there shouldn't be a homeless issue in this country. There shouldn't be a homeless problem in this country. There shouldn't be a hunger problem in this country. And so it just feels like what the capitalist United States see as, as important and what socialist Venezuela sees as important are really quite different, Glory. And as such, I just sort of feel that uh, really there's a lot to be learned from governments like Venezuela who consistently, even while under attack by the world's most powerful governments, still prioritizes uh, the fundamental needs of its people. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I'm so, you, I'm so glad you mentioned Venezuela, Sean, because today, April 13th, is exactly the 20th anniversary of when President Hugo Chavez, the leader of the Bolivarian Revolution, that he was brought back to power after a 48-hour coup by the U.S. The U.S. planned and directed this coup, and yet the people and the loyal part of the military restored him to office. And this was 2002, April, a very early time in his presidency when he was still facing an opposition parliament. 
He didn't have the full power to engage in all the programs and social progress that he dreamed of, and which we've seen much of the progress today, like the 4 million homes that you said have been built, a great, great, great victory. But imagine if the U.S. had succeeded. Imagine because the the right-wing military and other plotters took him out of office, they kidnapped him, took him to an island of Venezuela. They could have killed him and they probably would have planned to. And so these 20 years of progress has also been met by 20 years of a very, very tough resistance by the people. I've been to Venezuela many times, including a year before that coup against Chavez. And in the things that they have done in solidarity with Cuba, with Cuba's great, great assistance and having to this day more than 20,000 doctors providing free health care in Venezuela, providing uh, the example of what socialism can be and what they're struggling to build in that country, including housing the most, it's the most elemental thing that one can have. How can you, how can you take care of your other needs or take care of your family? How can you live outside as we see these countless tents of homeless people in the U.S.? I don't think there's any other country that is comparable, even in other capitalist countries, is comparable to see how many people are homeless in the street and now facing police raids, the theft of their tents or their little meager belongings, because now they say, now you don't have to be granted the right to live outdoors because the pandemic is nearly over, which is also not true. And yet this um, economic devastation in the United States, along with all the social uh, attacks, the attacks on women's right to abortion, that woman in Texas being charged, of course, the truck, Charges were dropped because of the opposition that was building for um, reportedly a self-induced abortion charged with murder or the Voting Voting Rights Act being thrown out. All these attacks on us in terms of the right to housing, the Supreme Court saying, yes, it's okay to be evicted because property rights must be protected. And then you have Venezuela, which in the middle of pandemic, in the middle of Sanctions, which has cut off their oil income, eliminated 99% of the government's income for the people, which is due from oil because of the U.S. theft and the theft of their gold and the blocking of medicines. It is quite remarkable that 4 million homes have been granted to the Venezuelan people. And I mean granted. I mean, people, I've, I've met many people and visited their homes, you know, wonderful accommodations. And when you ask them how long it took them to buy the home, about a year, you know, a few months at a very reasonable price for working class people who do not, who are not rich. And this shows it can be done, but you must have a government and a system. And in Venezuela, they're building socialism. And here the capitalists are just feeding off the trough like hogs, and they can never get enough. And neither can the military contractors who must continually build weapons to be used against other people. Definitely. We've got a caller on the line here. Ingrid, tell us what's on your mind. Thank you, Sean. Uh, What's on my mind, earlier you had a guest, TJ, who I guess wrote an article somewhere, and um, he was very strident in accusing 
uh, Putin of war crimes and uh, and twice at least said the war should not have been the first move. It should have been the last. There should have been diplomacy. And this is after he, he by the way, made no mention of the Minsk Accords that the Russians have been trying diplomacy since 2015. Um, this kind of omission is, is startling because he seemed to be so comprehensive and had so many references that he, that he would just not bring this up and would uh, pretend that this was a first move on Putin's part, and also to try to draw an equivalency between Putin and Biden, saying they're both deserving of war crimes, and not to mention the eight-year assault on the Donbass. Uh, I found I found this this kind of person really who is I don't know who he's speaking to because I think he's really more insidious in a way than the obvious propagandist because he pretends to be in, in the rational and let's hear both sides camp, but then makes this, this huge omission about that. And he's, he's really, this was about one of the worst. Uh, and also, as far as war crimes, this is not something that is going to be easily proven because there is a specific definition of war crimes. And as far as going in there, uh, there is... Um, from Article, or whatever it is, um, Article 51 of the UN Charter, there is grounds, legal grounds. I mean, legality aside, if he's if he's going to use this word crimes, you, you have to go by this uh, these man-made uh, definitions of laws. He he doesn't have a case really that is cut and dry by any means. But he's not the only one. You've had other people, maybe not you, but I know on, on other shows, people like Daniel Lazar, who does similar things of saying a lot of, of uh, both sides, and but then comes again with this equivalency saying, well, we don't think the Russians did the, the Buka massacre, but who knows what they did do. And then he makes what's basically a, a, a racist backhanded sideswipe saying, well, you know, those Russians, they have Chechens and they have people from Syria fighting on their side, as though those people are automatically less moral. And everything coming out of Mariupol, uh, the Chechens are the most restrained and disciplined of forces you could imagine. So I just, it seems to define somehow some strange sort of limited hangout. He He's entitled to his opinion, but I think he should be called up on his, his lack of presenting the whole case. Yeah, well, I uh, appreciate you calling in, Ingrid. Hope to hear from you again soon. I mean, I take your point. Uh, first, I think I should say, I, you know, I can't speak to what uh, other people say on other shows. I will say, I, I mean, I disagree that um, what TJ put forth was insidious. I mean, uh, he also did make mention, I believe it was in passing, about the um, uh, the killings that, that have been happening in the Donbass over uh, the last eight years. Um, 
uh, that we were mentioning a little earlier uh, in our discussion with Gloria. And and look, to be fair, I mean, he didn't just say that Putin was a war criminal that should be brought up on war crimes. He said Vladimir Putin, Joe Biden and uh, uh, Boris Johnson. And uh, uh, even still, and I mean, I also don't quite agree that uh, Vladimir Putin and uh, uh, Joe Biden are one and the same. But I mean, like you say, I mean, and this is his uh, opinion. And the funny thing is, you know, contrary to what the mainstream media will say, you know, we don't, uh, you know, here, at least on by any means necessary, we don't uh, uh, bring people on with the expectation that, you know, they're going to toe the line of this or that government. We, we bring them in for their opinion. And there are lots of there's a, a range and a spectrum of opinions on the Ukraine invasion in general. And I feel like what we've put on the show um, uh, reflects that. And even beyond the issue of Ukraine, I mean, we don't always necessarily uh, agree 100% with every single solitary thing that every guest uh, says, thinks, or believe. But, you know, the whole point here is a discussion. You know, there's uh, a number of people, uh, uh, quite a lot of people who sort of feels similarly in terms of feeling like, you know, uh, the, the Putin government should have tried diplomacy first and things like that. There are also people who have been on the show who, you know, while not supporting the invasion, have said that it's not really clear what else Russia was supposed to do, given that they uh, uh, put forth their uh, security concerns and that it was consistently ignored by the U.S. and the United States in an attempt to, uh, frankly, bring about the very thing that's happening right now, which is the war in Ukraine. So, yeah, definitely, you know, take your point. And you're more than welcome uh, to disagree uh, with that guest or with anything that that you hear on the show. But, I mean, what we're interested in here is getting a range of opinions that, uh, 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 as it uh, discusses and as things continue to unfold, uh, but at the end of the day, I mean, we're still uh, uh, talking about uh, sort of the overarching role of U.S. and NATO and how it only exacerbates the war in Ukraine and not improve conditions. But we've got another caller on the line here. Keith, tell us what's on your mind. A great show. Uh, two topics. One is the influence of the weapons industry in NATO writ large. And two, depending um, uh, uh, interest of Finland and Sweden and uh but at least so far, they've indicated that they will give it some consideration to join NATO. So let's go back to the um, arms industry. In 2014, at the time of the Maybine and um, uh, the uh, issues that they had going there, uh, what I'm uh, trying to ask is, if it's true, or your guests could talk about this, that at the time in 2014, by day, the CEO of Raytheon, by night, the, uh, the CEO of Raytheon sat on the NATO board, making fundamental decisions on who to attack and so forth and so on. And then by day, he was the CEO of Raytheon. Now, that is an inherent co conflict of interest. It just reeks of corruption. And so now, getting back to Sweden and Finland, what would be the value added? They have a wonderful relationship, these neutral countries, other than the, uh, they can sell them arms. I don't understand why Finland, which has the longest border with Russia, why would they need to join NATO? They have a wonderful relationship. There's, you know, they have a small military. And does your guest think that they will uh, go in to uh, join NATO in Finland, or do you think that they might resist this? Thank you. 
Well, thank you, Keith. Always good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Gloria, your response to our callers here. Yeah, thank you so much. I think it's hard to know what is going to happen with Finland and Sweden. It would be a very, very negative development if they joined NATO because of the growing encirclement of Russia and the chance of more war. I mean, the more that NATO feels the power and ability to expand, the more that they will be engage in more aggression. And I think, I think the sad thing is right now is that the American public, the United States has never suffered except for the bombing at um, Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941. The U.S. people have not experienced war on our soil of bombs destroying cities, of people being terrorized. And so there's a lot of complacency about, yeah, okay, yes, I guess, I guess it's okay if we send weapons, meaning we, meaning the U.S. government. It's almost like there's no protest. At the same time that we're suffering these massive cutbacks, tremendous poverty, the fact that even on one case, the COVID funding has been stopped in order to send weapons, and the, all the sympathy that's raised in the media about the Ukrainian people, the Ukrainian people. Well, the Ukrainian people are victims, not just of the war, but they're victims of the policies that NATO led them into because there could have been and should have been negotiations on a serious basis to respect Russia's security concerns, to respect the Minsk agreements, as everyone has mentioned. That would have saved the lives of everybody who's died so far or suffered wounding or cities destroyed. That cannot be lost. But NATO is pushing for more war. And in the United States, I don't think the people realize really what war means, except they'll see crying children or certain pictures meant to elicit sympathy, not for peace. Because the message of those media videos and pictures that we see on TV or the newspapers is not meant to say, stop the war, stop war. It's meant to say, okay, if NATO needs to do it, if Biden, if Biden needs to tell the Senate and the Senate votes 100% for more war spending for Ukraine, then so be it. I mean, this is just such a contradiction. Playing on people's sympathies, understandable sympathies, but twisting it for more war. And this is what we have to keep in mind in the progressive media, in the media like by any means necessary, and so many other stations which are struggling for, for the minutes to reach people, to win the hearts of the people, to really fight for peace. And I think that um, it's going to take a struggle, Sean. It's going to take a struggle of education of the listeners spreading the word, sharing your program, getting out in the street when there's protests. I mean, there haven't been protests really. There were, there were before February 24th, there were demonstrations saying abolish NATO and no war with Russia. Uh, I want to say in 1999, when I was in Yugoslavia, I've been reviewing my documentary that I made at that time, NATO targets Yugoslavia. And I'm looking at my old footage and there's a scene that I had not put in the video, but it was at the Chinese embassy that was bombed 
by the United States during the 1999 NATO bombing of Yugoslavia. And I was with Ramsey Clark, the great anti-war, anti-imperialist leader. He was laying flowers at the base of the embassy where three Chinese workers had died. And he gave a speech where he said, the only way to peace in the world is to abolish NATO and to try the war criminals who bombed, he said, from the higher up down to those who flew the planes and fired the missiles. There must be a, a trial for war crimes. Now, who headed that? was Bill Clinton. And now Bill Clinton's being seen as some elderly statesman who can give advice to NATO. Well, I consider him a war criminal. Definitely. And I see there's a question in the uh, by any means necessary chat. Uh, D.L. Sendero says, Sean, what is the anti-war movement to do in times like this one? And this is a good question and an important one and actually fundamental, particularly for those of us here inside the United States. Because the fact is, is that the anti-imperialist movement in the United States, and I suspect in the West in general, was uh, backfooted by uh, the uh, Russia invasion of Ukraine and sort of uh, uh, taken off guard. But what to me is the proper response is to have an independent, sophisticated, comp uh, a complicated analysis of not only the war as it's happening right now, but to understand the broader context of what even led to this point, which is what we've been uh, attempting to do here on By Any Means Necessary with not only analyzing the current moment of the Ukraine war, but talk about the U.S.-backed coup in, in 2014, uh, 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 to talk about the whole role of NATO and why it exists and how it's been operating since 1949, and particularly as a corrective to this very propaganda that we've been discussing this hour, the very best thing we can do is to study and get more informed about both the particulars and the generalities. You know, what is the history of NATO? What is the history of Ukraine uh, 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 under the Soviet Union and then after the fall of the Soviet Union? How has NATO been been operating in the time since? And how has the U.S. Uh, been weaponizing and utilizing NATO both in uh, Eastern Europe and across the globe? Sort of as it's, uh, you know, a, a, a personal a part of the, the military apparatus to maintain U.S. hegemonic control. But above all else. It is incumbent upon us here in the United States, here in the imperial core, to hold this government accountable for its role in instigating the war that's happening in Ukraine right now. Because for us, and we've been very consistent about this on, on, on by any means necessary, that is really the primary route of the war in Ukraine that's happening right now. Now, of course, you're not allowed to say that. In uh, the mainstream media, you're not allowed to bring the real context and the reality of what's happening, because if you say any if you say anything that is anything except a full throated condemnation of Vladimir Putin and Vladimir Putin alone, well, then you're accused of supporting uh, uh, Russian war crimes. And so I, uh, it's important also, I think, that just because we see a country under attack by the United States 
does not mean that we uncritically take the line of that government. That's not what independent movements do. So we have to ask ourselves, well, what is our goal? And it seems to me that the goal is to fight and resist U.S. imperialism, which is responsible for the suffering not only in Ukraine, but all over the globe. And since we see that as the chief contradiction, then we must uh, orient our organizing as such to make that the target of uh, our organizing and our work to try to bring an end to this campaign of forever war that we're seeing ravaging people, lands and resources across this earth. But Gloria, in our last few minutes, I was hoping to get your view on that as well about how you see the sort of appropriate um, stance of the U.S. anti-war, anti-imperialist movement in this moment. So much with you, Sean, and what you were saying. We are only responsible for our government, but we happen to live in the country of the government that's the most destructive and dangerous to world peace whether it's the U.S. financing Israeli apartheid against the Palestinians or selling the weapons and the jets that murder the Yemeni people. I mean, we can mention a thousand examples. And it's all, it, it, it's, it's all so criminal, and yet we cannot become paralyzed. It's easy to say, well, what can I do? I mean, this is impossible. Like, we can't fight the media. We can't expose the truth. Yeah, yes, yes, you can. Find the alternate progressive media as a station that we're on and the program we're on. Share it with people. Engage with your coworkers. You know, maybe you can't get into a big, deep discussion with people because of the circumstances, but maybe you can start to break open some of these, you know, crack open some of this hard line by people that they've been adopting unknowingly and unfairly it's not people's fault that they don't know what's happening right they can't find the truth the other is fighting at home for housing rights fighting evictions calling your congress people you know maybe that can seem hopeless but do it anyway i think there should i think there should be campaigns against the congress people who keep voting for war and don't do a thing for the people the issue of abortion rights every fight we have at home is helping the cause for social justice abroad you can't have jobs and social programs at home when you have war and occupation abroad. It's all one. Become an activist in your community, in the international arena. The main thing is no sanctions. The Russian people, the people of Ukraine, the people need peace and they need an end to these sanctions. They are a violation of international law. And we must have an end to this war by demanding NATO out, abolish NATO. Absolutely. NATO should be abolished. And I appreciate you raising housing again there, Gloria, because when we talk about fighting imperialism, that's not just some abstract concept, right? Uh, uh, or some, you know, flight of fancy uh, that, 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 that we're talking about. We're talking about an institution that it, it literally robs us of these resources that are so sorely needed in the United States right now, just like we've been discussing so many very basic things that so many people don't have in the wealthiest nation in the history of nations. So we fight imperialism because imperialism is an assault on us as much as it is an assault on the peoples of the rest of the world. So we have to see not only that connection between war abroad and lack and suffering at home, but also our connection with 
the struggling peoples uh, of the earth. It is our duty to fight, resist, and to destroy and overturn imperialism, both for our own sake and for the sake of people around the world. Well, we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Gloria LaRiva, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.